here's where you have to know how to drop your golf ball. Sure speeds up play when you have those drop areas. Fowler has dropped the ball twice. The Shambo is going to get a free drop. Something bad has happened if we end up here. This is the drop zone. It is a Sunday night, Sunday late afternoon in Hawaii, and Sean Zock and I are not in Hawaii. We are in our respective cold weather climates. It's cough drop season here in Seattle, Sean. I'm sure it might be even worse in Chicago, but I will try to uh, try not to do any throat clearing into the microphone. It's been a real week of imagination in the golf watching world. We have been witnessing Kapalua in all its glory, the whales breaching, the people surfing, uh, I mean, the announcers talking about how great their stays at the Ritz-Carlton have been, all sort of very uh, secondhand enjoyable, maybe envious. I don't know. I want to know, Sean, you've been writing up the gamer. You've been working hard at your laptop over there. What's the biggest story of this week in golf? It's not in Kapalua. The biggest story for me this week was in New York City, uh, across the country, pretty fully across the country, was the USGA announcement for the U.S. Women's Open, not just the sites, the courses that they're going to bring that event to, but the fact that that event now has a sponsor. ProMedica is the U.S. Women's Open presenting sponsor, and it is the first, uh, I believe, USGA event now that has a presenting sponsor. Yeah, I think that's which, right. Which is a big deal. It's not the first major championship to have a sponsor. Um, there have been women's majors elsewhere that have had sponsors. Um, but this feels different, right? The USGA is the governing body that overrules the game probably as much as any other governing body, honestly, in the world. And for them to do this, for them to add a sponsor to their premier women's event, people will think, wow, that kind of cheapens things, right? It kind of cheapens the sanctity of the U.S. Open or the U.S. Women's Open. And to that, I say, shove it. Who gives a damn if we cheapen the name of the event just a little bit? Why? Because cheapening the name, if we have to call it that, is jumping the purse from $5.5 million to ten. That's crazy. Almost 100% increase in the purse this year with plans across the next five years to go up to $12 million in its purse, trying honestly as hard as they really can to elevate the women's game to a, an equal level of pay uh, that the men's game currently exhibits. And it's just, if that's what it takes, if it takes ProMedica coming to the table, a company I didn't know of before Friday afternoon, if that's what it takes, I am all for it. Who, like, it can be the U.S. Women's Open presented by any damn company out there. And if it's going to help the women get closer to, to making the same amount of money as the men do, we are here for it. That was the big news of the week for me. Can I tell you something that I can't decide if it's petty or not, but this is just something that I feel. Is this a safe space okay. for that? <laughs> this is totally safe. If it is the U.S. Women's Open presented by ProMedica, I'm all in. But if it's the ProMedica U.S. Women's Open, <laughs> I'm bummed out. I, I don't sure. know if that's right or wrong, but that to me is an important distinction. Um, look, it's awesome. It's, it's great news. 
when something like this comes out, especially when it concerns the women's game, especially as, you know, a, a bunch of male journalists in the space, it's hard to not just seem like you're sort of cheerleading, um, right? Be and, and that can sure that can cheapen from the sidelines. That can cheapen the whole thing, right? We're supposed to evaluate independently um what's going on, say what we really think, not just sit here and say, you know, rah rah, go USGA. So I want to be careful about not doing that too much. But I think that what the USGA here is doing is, one, they are reclaiming the U.S. Women's Open as the premier event in women's golf. And it probably still was. But, you know, yeah, the I, I didn't think that was is, up for debate. For, but I know people talked about it. Like no, it but yeah, I mean, the ANA had its own appeal that, you know, there were there were different events that were pretty fun with this purse hike. There's no question. The U.S. Women's Open is the biggest event on the LPGA schedule. The other thing that they're doing is their job, I think. I mean, this is... this <laughs> is true. People talk about... When they talk about the women's game and purses of women's events compared to men, a lot of the time people just talk about ratings. They talk about how it's a business. But the USGA is a nonprofit. Yeah, they're a business. Yeah, they're they're making the bottom line work, but... They're doing okay in terms of donations. They're they're doing all right in terms of, you know, executive compensation. Their job is to grow the game. Golf obviously historically has has done a better job growing the game with um you know, some demographics than others. Women have taken a backseat for too long in that department. So, should the US Women's Open and the US Open have the same exact purse? I don't know, but but making a significant investment in the U.S. Women's Open seems to me like it is doing their job as a nonprofit with a clear focus on growing the game, you know, not just for the game that will make them back money, but, you know, but just with the hope that more people will get into golf, women and girls specifically included. It takes money, man. Like, it takes a lot of money in order for the top 10 players in the world to continue to like elevate themselves across the greater ecosystem of athletes. It's important that you have to have a lot of money injected into the game for the 150th best player in the world to have a living wage and salary. You have to, we have to get to a point where the 300th best golfer in the world is able to do it professionally without having to have a side gig. I think right now in the women's game, if you're the 300th best women, women's player in the world, you're looking at other jobs to, to supplement your professional golf lifestyle. That's not the case in the men's game. That's not the case for the top 600, 800, maybe 1,000 men's golfers in the world. So it's like it needs injection like this and, and more of it too. What's the bigger deal to you, the golf courses involved or the money involved? Uh, <laughs> I think they're honestly... I, I kind of tease that I think it's a bigger deal that the, the money is getting hiked up so much and not just hiking it up now, but for, with plans to do in the future. But the golf courses is a huge, huge, huge thing too, because holy cow, they're going to just absolute list of banger golf courses, Pebble, Riviera. Uh, I obviously love Aaron Hills. I think women playing that mm, course will yeah. be a ton of fun. Uh, Marion, I think you have Pinehurst. You have Oakland Hills. Like these are the U.S. Open. These are the bangers. Like play the hits. They're they're allowing the women, the best players in the world, to go to the places where golf 
freaking matters. Where history matters, where history is made. And I'm going to tell you a secret that I know is not a secret to you, but it is a secret to a lot of people. The best women want to win championships where the best men have won championships. They want to go to Olympic Club like they did last summer. You know what? They want to go to Oakmont too. They want to go play at St. Andrews too. And they want to play at Pebble. Like this is no, this should be no secret any longer. We should have, (laughs) there are going to be some courses that it makes sense like Pine Needles where they're hosting the Women's Open this year. It's not going to be a place that Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka are going to play at for the Men's U.S. Open. But it doesn't mean that Oakmont is a place where women couldn't go and thrive as well. So, got all my takes out there. One little side note before we get to the next thing. How about Justin Thomas taking a little shot at the USGA this week? I actually haven't heard anyone talk about this. We could even call it breaking news, even though it had nothing to do with us. It was just him talking to some reporter um, on Saturday in Kapalua. But he said he thinks that Riviera could have a U.S. Open tomorrow, like on the men's side. They're going to have a women's U.S. Open. And told that the women are going to play a a women's U.S. Open there. He said, yeah, I know. I've been lobbying for one for a while, but it doesn't fit their agenda of being able to have their corporate tents and everything. So the U.S. Open's about them and not the players in a situation like that. It's such a, like, trimmed down reductive like this is the the only problem with the u.s open site is just based off of tents like i i just hate when jt <laughs> he just like takes the icing off a cake and is like this cake is all icing it's just bs i wouldn't mind a cake that was all icing <laughs> big time icing guy okay sean anyway I, I mean i'm i'm just sort of curious to see if like clearly there's still something there between the hey justin we need to talk usga setup um I agree with you. That's the biggest story of the week. I think the second biggest story of the week is that golf is back. And I don't know if you would say better than ever, but maybe the golfers are better than ever, whether you not the think, whether or not you think the product is better than ever. Who boy. Uh, there were some low scores this week. I believe in the history of the PGA tour, there have been three players that have reached 30 under par or better. And today there were three more, <laughs> three more guys today. Uh, if, if you're someone out there that's doing the well, actually thing about these scores, then like get out of town. Yes. I understand things were set up for low scores. The fairways roll out quite a bit. The greens are nice and soft. The trade winds, as you'll hear about later in this show, were laying down this week. So Kapalua was left without a lot of defenses. It was nice and warm. It was very pleasant. With that said, 34 under par won the golf tournament. That's over four rounds. You could shoot eight under par four rounds in a row and you would not win the tournament. This was insane. And I think before we kind of get into the issues involved with scores being this low, it's probably worth just recognizing the standard of golf is just incredibly, incredibly high on the PGA Tour. If you or I went to Kapalua, we would not leave thinking oh man this is the easiest golf course I've ever seen or something like that and I think that's that's the way the discourse kind of heads naturally when we see scores this low now partly these guys are just that good and they're better at golf than they've ever been that was my my biggest takeaway from this week sure yeah and I also just think that this might be the exact 
course on which the modern American style of golf is just going to thrive as, as far as it can go. You know, it is a course that you play through the air and you also can benefit from plenty of rollout. Like the Hills Mm -hmm. help, help a lot of those drives. You know, Mark Rolfing kept saying on the broadcast all weekend, you come to Hawaii, you'll never hit further drives than you do here. Yeah. Um, So there's that, you know, there's the bombing, gouging, aerial attack where you hit a ton of drivers and you hopefully will have plenty of wedges and you know there's probably one more par five than you need to have on that golf course um Mm -hmm. there's a par five that that almost played exactly to a score of four all week (laughs) um yeah it like if that's not something that you know if like you said the well actually crowd or people that really get turned off by that number look we're going to keep going to this tournament year after year. And it's probably going to continue to be like this. Like I I don't really see a scenario unless the wind gets really, really high in which a score of 22 under doesn't win. Uh, You know, you know what I'm trying to say? Look, I'm not saying that you don't have a point if you're saying like, well, look, there's these other factors. It's a par 73, you know, a lot of these holes play shorter, et cetera. Those things are all true. It's still insane to just keep making birdie after birdie after birdie. Um, it, but it is funny. I mean, Mark Rolfing or, or uh, the guys doing play-by-play saying, oh, man, yeah, he didn't quite catch the slope there, didn't get much roll on balls that are rolling out like 30 yards already is pretty funny. So there's definitely some hidden shortened uh, yardages out there for sure. What's interesting about this for me, and it's the perfect like Monday morning – quarterbacking and and like water cooler talk mm-hmm. is just like you know is this even an is it an issue um is is 34 under just the progress of time um john rom was asked about it and he said yeah tiger woods made this a cooler sport and this is the result of it you have a lot of the you know a lot of people that maybe would have gone and played other sports or didn't play sports at all they took up golf and they took it a lot more seriously, and 34 under is the result of all that. You have, you know, that side of the argument where they're, you know, that's just the, that's the, <laughs> that's called, you know, evolution. Yeah. And the other side of the argument would be, this is a huge issue. We should, you know, we're not using enough long irons. We're not having enough people uh, hit less than driver off the tee. There's not enough forced cuts or forced draw mm-hmm. shots and you know there's going to be a lot of courses this year that you have to hit forced cuts and forced draws on and they're not hosting a major championship at Kapalua and so this is a little bit like preseason football where you have a limited field and it's a lot easier and it's kind of a three-point contest so to say yeah. um, well in the three-point contest Sean <laughs> The three-pointers are getting easier, too, and that's like a... Well, they're not getting easier. They're the exact same thing as they were, but <laughs> guys are certainly making them at a higher rate. Yeah. I mean, the, so the is most that a big ever, deal? I don't know, but the most I've ever gotten crushed online was last year when I sort of suggested that... I posed the question of whether Dustin Johnson was playing golf at a higher level than someone had ever played it. Oh, Basically that meaning, <laughs> Fun. you know, the equivalent this week would be okay, if you dropped Tiger in his prime with that equipment and that skill level at Kapalua this week, are you saying he would shoot 35 under par with that gear 
etc. Because I don't think he would. But the, I mean, the, we should get into this another time because this turned into, you <laughs> or know, maybe never again. <laughs> yeah, or maybe never because this turned into people saying, "Oh man, who's this <laughs> that thinks he's?" Uh, we probably have to cut that. <laughs> who's this jerk who's saying that Dustin Johnson? is better than Tiger Woods, which was, oh my God, we've gone too far already. Sean, I want to take you to a game because this actually is going to come up in our game. We do overrated, underrated, properly rated sometimes. Today we're going to do overreaction, underreaction, proper reaction. I'm going to pepper you with exactly five questions, excuse me, five takes, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to have you tell me whether they are an overreaction, an underreaction, or a proper reaction. The first one is this. Cameron Smith is now the best player on the President's Cup team. He's the best international golfer, essentially. Uh, overreaction, underreaction, or proper reaction? I'm really putting you on the spot here to kind of scan through these international uh, flags in your mind. It's a, it's a, yeah, no, it's a slight overreaction. Um, as long as Hideki's on that team, I think Hideki is a better golfer than Cameron Smith. That said, I'm not going to say that like from this moment forward, Hideki will have a better career than Cam Smith. Cam Smith can get he can get real hot with the putter. He's a really good ball striker, accurate driver, all around like really really solid game that will win maybe a tournament on the PGA Tour every other year. Um, that's a really good golfer. That that's a golfer who can win major championships. Uh, but Hideki's is. Still I think in the rankings, I haven't seen the update this week, but Cam Smith may may jump to two behind Louis Oosthuizen in, in that category. But Louis famously did not win a golf tournament last year, so he was not invited this week. He's famously never won a golf tournament on the PGA Tour in the last decade. I mean, he's he's up there in the rankings, but the other guys are going to be Hideki, Abraham Answer, Sung J M, Joaquin Neiman, Cameron Smith is. I mean, he's definitely in the mix. It's not a crazy overreaction, but that was my first instinct. No, no, no. Slight. All right, Sean, number slight. two. John Rahm, just not a winner. Oh, my God. We're looking at a pattern uh, of behavior I, here I, where John Rahm gets oh in God. contention, you're, you're... and he just can't close it out. I mean, look, he couldn't even, couldn't even pass a <laughs> test at the Memorial. You know, guys, a six-shot lead, can't close that one out. Gets in the mix at the Open at the Northern Trust. Tour Championship, sure, he shoots the lowest score that week, a classic Xander Shoffley move, but he doesn't actually win the top prize. Now this week, you see, you know, he just doesn't quite have the firepower to get it across the line. Is is Does John Rahm have a winning problem? No. Uh, Excuse I, me, this needs to be a take. John Rahm has a winning problem. <laughs> that is uh, a, an absurd obnoxious, stupid overreaction. I know you don't believe it. I know you were almost tripping up on your words in order to, to say it. So, yeah. I'm glad you made it to number two of these takes with with one that was just horrendously unserious. Like, <laughs> you got to do better than that. The guy won the U.S. Open last right. year. Sean Zock says John Rahm can still close. John Rahm has a closing problem? Are Not you kidding me? Uh, many people are saying... Number three, Sean, the PGA Tour is too damn easy. It's just not enough of a test for these guys. Uh, you know, you yeah. finished 10 under this week. You beat two guys. Congratulations. Average score was maybe 19 under, something like that. 
it's too damn easy. These guys are the best golfers in the world. We should at least give them some sort of test on a weekly basis. Uh, okay. I think this is actually a proper Ooh. reaction. Um, I'm comfortable with this take because I actually have spent a lot of time studying just tour setups <laughs> recently. How fast these courses, uh, these how, the, how fast the greens are set up to stimp, how uh, the length of the fairway cut, the length of the first cut, all that stuff. And you really are hard pressed to find a course that is set up that is not a major championship setup, is not the players, and like isn't Bay Hill or the Memorial. There's like there's like seven setups every year that these dudes are really tested. And 2021 was the first calendar year in which every single PGA Tour championship or every every champion of a tour event won with double digits under par. Nobody wow. won with single digits under every par. Every single one. Yeah. So wow. we're reaching a point where there's a lot of tournaments that are set up to stimp at 12 to have the first cut be you know an inch and a half where you just bomb it, you gouge it. The technology obviously helps, and the TGA Tour has little to do with the technology. But, yeah, there is not enough challenging these guys to make them struggle to hit, hit the 10 to 12 under par mark. Number four, Sean, because I think you just declared that very well. I don't, I have no notes, nothing to add. Number four, you are going to quit golf after your simulator session this weekend. Overreaction, underreaction, yeah. or proper reaction? So I, I tweeted that out, and I tried to make it sound somewhat sarcastic that I had a, uh, a horrible or a horrible Shanks episode at the simulator. Yeah, there's nothing sarcastic about this. You made it clear in text messages to me yeah. that, that the, the Shanks episode was a, a concrete, real thing that happened. So it was a slight overreaction from me. Um, that said, I, I will do it some justice in that I was at the sim. I hit no fewer than 25 shanks um, in an hour's mm. time. And you know, what's sad about this is it's Sunday night, about 8 30 PM in Chicago. And I woke up about 12 hours ago, Sunday morning at like 8 30 AM. And I told myself on Saturday night, when you wake up Sunday, that simulator ses session will have not happened. I texted the buddy I went with mm. and I said, what did we do yesterday? We should visit a simulator soon. I haven't been one, to one in mm. a, a long time, completely acting like it didn't happen. And now 12 hours on, you've reminded me that indeed it did happen. Uh, and the worst, That's the worst, on worst, me. worst possible thing that you can do as someone who shanks the ball is to think about the last time that you hit a shank. Um, I, I, you know, I think I'm going to get past this, but it was a pretty harrowing uh, episode in which the guy who I went with also like shot under par, and so like there was this oh, wasn't geez. the simulator's fault. <laughs> this this was operator error. That seems like an overreaction from him. Overcompensation. Be a good friend. <laughs> Maybe shank a couple in solidarity. Oh. All right, Sean. Our fifth and final take is that the PGA Tour season has officially begun now that we have played at Kapalua. No. Is that no. true? No. I am a I'm a big uh stickler on uh, 
You're a mainland guy? You're a full field <laughs> no, guy? I'm What's a full going on field here? Guy. You know that. You know I always, in a fun way, have poked uh, holes through Tiger's you know, most recent victories, winning at the Masters. That's a limited field. Winning at the Zozo. That's a no-cut limited field. Winning the Tour Championship, even smaller field than this week. Um, and yes, I'm, I'm joking about most of it, but also just like... Yeah, you're not joking anymore, but I think you, you should definitely lean into it. At think this about point. it. The Masters. What is the Masters but a it limited is, field event? It is anyway. so much harder for Cam Smith to win next week than it is to win this past weekend. It just truly is. It's a numbers game. I'm not sure that that's true because nobody plays the Sony Open. But <laughs> okay. Go on. What I'm trying to say is a field of 144 PGA Tour players is a lot harder to beat than a field of 38 uh, or 37 opponents, whatever. And... I think if if a typical field showed up to the Sony, if it wasn't a very weak field, you know, I think I think one of those dudes probably shoots 30 under. If if John Rahm and Matt Jones are both doing it, I bet you maybe one, maybe two of those dudes get to 28 to 30 under. Like that's just a sheer numbers game. And so yeah, I think the tour really really gets going next week. The first field that everyone can really get into. First field that matters for our fantasy league, so yeah, it starts next week. This is interesting. I actually thought maybe you're going to go off the board because I, my golfing brain has been forever mapped out by where Tiger Woods would begin his season. That's that didn't usually happen so in Hawaii. Elitist of so, you. Look, no, no doubt, no <laughs> argument there. But in my mind, the. PGA Tour season begins in earnest when they hit Torrey Pines because of that. That's just that's just how it is in my mind. That's not the beginning. That's of the not fall even season. that bad though. It's not the Tournament of Champions. It's just a, you know it's a few weeks later at Torrey Pines at the Buick Open. That's the first event. That's of not the even year. that bad of a take these days because of what you said earlier. Sony Open really kind of struggling to pull top ranked tour stars. Tournament of Champions limited field. Hit and giggle. People who shoot 34 under. The next event is the American Express, played in the desert. That really pulls a pretty mm. weak field uh, annually. And so the you know the most natural event would be the next one. Torrey Pines generally gets a pretty solid field, uh, played on a couple fun courses. That feels like an actual the first kind of potential grind fest that you guys have to actually have to go through. I guess Sean, we can just keep having season beginning podcasts then Perfect. this is great every week the season begins anew <laughs> um exciting stuff ahead though here sean I, I should have teased this at the beginning of the podcast but we have the voice of the beginning of the golf season on we have the voice of hawaiian golf we have the man who it is an absolute delight to listen to him he's just a happy cheery dude roll down a hill you will listen to our interview with mark rolfing uh, Golf Channel, NBC, uh, personality, broadcaster, analyst. And I think you'll just feel a little bit calmer, a little bit better. Um, he takes us through a bunch of things, how he ended up in Hawaii to begin with, how he's ended up living his decades there, what this stretch in the golf schedule means to him, uh, and a little bit about what he's excited about this season. Anything else, Sean, that I'm missing? People are, should be excited to listen to here in the next 28 uh, minutes. You know, there's a little info for like Chicago golfers like myself about mm. the the future of Jackson Park and Muni that we all love. Um, but besides that, no, I just it was it was my first time meeting him. Um, I guess e meeting him. So 
he immediately went to like offer me an invite to a Cubs game with him sometime at Wrigley Field. Love that. He's just he's he's probably one of the happiest men in golf. I think that's a fair ac- accurate statement. All right, that's enough of us. Thanks for listening. Here's Mark Rolfing. Okay, we are here at the very beginning of the golf season, the 2022 PGA Tour season specifically, and we are joined by the voice of the beginning of the golf season, Mark Rolfing from Hawaii. Mark, thanks for being here in the drop zone. No, it's great to be in the drop zone, and I can't wait to get the season started. As you say, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I was all in a huff when we started the wraparound season, as they call it, I guess, I don't know how many years ago, six or seven, maybe. Um, but when you talk to the players and, and you read all the stuff about it, like it, this is the start of the season. It's the beginning of January. And one of the things that's really different this year is that so many guys have taken a lot of time off that it really is like the start of a new season now. Yeah. And that's one of the things I was going to ask you about. What is the feeling down there? How do you approach the first event of the new year? And, and does it essentially feel like this is the starting point for the PGA tour year? Yeah, it it really does. Um, It has changed dramatically. I will tell you in the last 10 years, you know, this event went through a little bit of a Valley. Uh, We had the, the glory years of right at the turn of the century when Tiger and Ernie were playing off in a classic, Duel and stuff like that. And then by kind of the, the late uh, 2008, 9, 10 in that area, you know, some players started skipping it. We had a change of sponsors a couple of times and it just the event lost its luster a little bit. And all of a sudden, this new wave of players came along. Um, it's become a must, a must uh, accept invite. You know, there were 40 guys who qualified this week and 39 of them accepted, which is just a remarkable field. But the biggest difference that I've seen, uh, you guys, is that not half the players are on vacation anymore. It used to be half guys were serious, <laughs> half the guys were kind of coming on vacation and bringing families and doing this and that, and it is all business now. I've never seen so many players come as early as they did, a lot of them late last week. And this past weekend, where normally the, the golf course is a ghost town, there's a lot of guys out practicing already the weekend before. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that they've changed their perception of it? Well, a cu- couple of things. One is I think they're realizing that, um, you know, this is a tremendous opportunity. I talked with Phil about it yesterday a little bit. You know, he's only got to beat 37 guys this week. Um, it's a small field. Um, it, it really is a great chance to get kickstarted. And everybody's now seeing how important it is in this FedEx Cup to get off to a good start if you get too far behind. You're really in a box. But the other thing that's causing it is we're going through this climate change out here. And um, you used to be able to sort of play the plantation course by memory because it played the same all the time. It was a trade wind that blew from the northeast and and kind of blew down the mountain. And so all the elements were going the same way and you knew how it was going to play. And so it's taking a lot more work, uh, not to mention the fact that, oh, my heavens, they can't use green books. Um, and you know, that's, that's really causing people to have to do more work, I think, than they typically have in the past coming to this event. I wonder, Mark, if you could take us back to the beginning of your involvement with TV broadcasts and with this event in particular, because I think people might know the general story, but you know, I've never heard you tell it. So I was curious, (laughs) how did you get, how did this all get started? What was, what was step one for you? Well, I had played my way right out of the competitive game in the late 70s. And um, 
you know, I didn't know what I was going to do and I couldn't beat anybody and wasn't nearly as good as I thought I was. And somehow I ended up out here. I played in the Hawaiian Open uh, that year. I think it was 1976, actually, and decided to come out on holiday with this wonderful gal I had met who's now been my wife, I guess, for over 40 years. Um, and uh, we just ended up not leaving. And so I was here for a while, started as the assistant pro. I still played reasonably well. And um, in the early 80s, we began a postseason event, the Coppolo International, that became wildly popular. Uh, by 1985, it was on NBC. Um, you know, Greg Norman won his first event on, on American soil here in 83 and became a great event. And so given that I was still playing okay, I used to give myself an exemption every year and I played. Uh, it was about a 55-man field. So wait, you were able to give yourself the exemption? Yeah, I gave myself the exemption. So anyway, in 1985, we got a new sponsor, Isuzu, a car company. And back in the days, you know, sponsorships weren't like they are now. Uh, and the concept of giving away a car on a par three really wasn't wasn't a concept that, you know, happened. And uh, somehow we concocted a deal where the sponsor put up a car on the 17th hole. Tournament was on the Bay Course, which is the resort here, resort course at Kapalua. And um, so of all the players in the field, who do you think won the car? Well, I did. <laughs> and uh, that was quite an upset and everybody knew it and caused quite a commotion. And um, they brought me up to the 18th Tower for an interview. and. I had never really ever been on TV at that point. I don't think, I mean, maybe a few interviews and stuff, but um, Ben Scully was the host. I'll never forget. And Lee Trevino, the analyst and Lee thought it had been fixed because he and I had played a lot of golf together. My wife and I are godparents of his two kids, uh, two of his kids. And um, he just was laughing and saying, you're not that good. And how did you do it? You know, did you skull it or what? Um, no, I didn't. There's a replay. It looks like a pretty good shot to me. And uh, anyway, I ended up staying in the booth for about 10 minutes. And the producer of the show, an iconic uh, guy who passed uh, last year, Don Olmeyer, called me that night at home and said, hey, why don't you come back to the uh, to the booth tomorrow and do an appearance? And then I said, yeah, you know, no matter what I shoot. And he said, yeah, you got great local knowledge and all that. So anyway, I came back. And uh, when the tournament was over, he said, you know, you you're really good at that. You know, how'd you like to try, uh, you know, kind of a, a test drive, a rehearsal uh, at the World Cup next week on ESPN. It was in Palm Springs. And so um, I thought, you know, why, why would people listen to me? Back then, there was no Gary McCord. There was no David Faraday. You had to have won a major to be an analyst on, on television. And um, anyway, I went. And they did a whole fraternity initiation thing for me. I'll never forget uh, Lenny Watkins and Tom Kite were the American team. So the first thing they did was send me down to the first tee to interview Lenny right before he teed off, which, you know, can generate quite a, uh, a reaction from Lenny when he asked him to do that. Of course, they didn't. <laughs> um, the Ozaki brothers from Japan were finishing on the 18th hole on the other. Uh, side of the course and they sent me over there to interview them they were next to last place and neither one spoke English and that was a disaster and um, it, it was just it was great um, but somehow I made it through it and the next thing you know they offered me a job and that is literally how I got this job. So it sounds like you were at some point considered just a natural at it I mean they took you off the course to do it why were you so good at it what about you made sense for that job? 
Um, I think, you know, Don Omai, who was my first producer that first year, he, he told me a couple of things. He said, just be you. Um, you know, it was ESPN. So it wasn't NBC yet. I worked at ESPN for two years in 86 and 87. And he said, just be you. And the thing I really want you to do more than anything is develop a relationship with players. And I had started to do that through the tournament out here because, you know, when guys come to Hawaii, they always need favors. And so they're always calling me. And, and so I really started developing a relationship with a lot of the players. And I think that probably helped me more than anything. And um, the, he just, uh, Olmeyer had me just kind of focus on making sure that I could communicate. Uh, he thought that was the most important thing. And he really taught me how to listen. That was the hardest thing for me in the beginning was talking and listening at the same time. And, um, you know, he said, don't try to be funny. You're not that funny of a guy. When you try to be funny, you're not really. So um, it's, I don't know. It just, it kind of happened. And it's just amazing to me. I'm going to walk up that tower at 18 and get into that booth and put on the headset. And that's going to be my 37th year. Whew. that I have done that. I, I just can't believe that this has all happened. Do you have any particular memories of working with Ben Scully um, because he's such a broadcasting legend? And was he someone that you looked up to or were there other people that you really, really looked up to in the business? Uh, I, I can't tell you enough stories about Ben Scully. Uh, my favorite memories with Ben were senior skins. Uh, they used to do a skins game on NBC and uh, a senior skins game. And it was always played over on the big island. And um, it was just, it was, it was iconic uh, in the game at the time because Arnold Palmer was playing and Jack Nicholas and Lee Trevino. And, you know, there were four, four players every year. And there was only two announcers. It was Vin Scully and Mark Rolfing. So there was no analyst in a booth. It was just Vin was kind of in a, a trailer, I guess, in the in the compound. And I was out on the course. And uh, it's, it's just the freedom we had and, you know, the fact that we had four other players mic'd up, which nobody did back in those days, um, and that I had sort of full access to these guys, uh, you know, with the greatest voice in the game or in sports, really. Uh, as my host, Th those were just unbelievable days. He, Vinny taught me a lot. There is not a, not a nicer man in the world than Vin Scully, I'll tell you. Do you do a Vin Scully impression? No, I can't do one. I, who, <laughs> who could possibly do that? I, I, I got to tell you, though, you know, everybody said, oh, Scully, how's he going to do that? You know, he's not not that good at golf. You know, he's, not, he's a terrible golfer. And um, but. I was just amazed at how he could weave in these stories uh, in, in the moment that were incredible. And he never got out of his comfort zone. You know, he can do analysis when he's doing baseball play by play, but he didn't do any of that with golf. And that was what was great because he would just immediately go, let's go down to Mark, you know, and uh, we'd have a conversation. It was, it was fantastic. All right. So if you are the, speaker of Hawaii golf. If you are the man for Hawaii golf, I've never been to Hawaii. So I, I know everyone raves about it. I know I need to go at some point. Um, and I know that there are, are multiple wins that are named certain ways. I know that you are pretty avid about the wins. Well, how does Kona wins get you so excited? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, you know, Kona, nobody even knew me for Kona wins before social media came along. And, and now, you know, like, 
when I say it, it's like, oh my heavens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a Kona win. So, so when we built the golf course, I was involved in the beginning here 30 years ago. And it was really Bill Cora and Ben Crenshaw's first big design. And it was a very difficult piece of property. 550 acres. The elevation went from about 45 feet to almost 600. Big sweeping piece of land. And the trade winds blew right down the mountain every day. Like we we studied rainfall and wind charts from the old pineapple fields that were up there. And it was so consistent. Over 300 days a year, there were trade winds. Uh, when a Kona wind came, which was from the opposite direct, direction, the southeast or the southwest, um, it, the course played totally differently. We had designed all the long holes to basically go downhill downwind. So they would play a little shorter with the normal element. The Kona wind now actually blows into the mountain. And so if you're coming down the mountain with the wind coming off the water, the, you know, the ball isn't going to roll out and the holes are going to play really long. So the course plays opposite is the way, uh, or plays backwards is what Max Holma told me a couple of days ago. It's playing backwards right now. Um, it doesn't play any harder. It actually plays easier, I think. What? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it does. Um, because if you think about it, if you have slope, wind, and grain all going the same way, that can be pretty severe. Uh, it can be very bouncy and tricky and quirky. Uh, but when the wind blows into the slope, it kind of neutralizes everything and softens it up. And that's what you're going to see this week at Tapalua. That's uh, We've had an inordinate amount of rain. Uh, the most that I've ever seen in December. I think we had 27 measurable days of rain out of 30, which is a lot. We've had 16 inches in the last two weeks. So it looks fantastic, uh, but it's playing pretty soft actually right now, which means the scores are going to be very low. What can you tell us about what has just happened this weekend, looking, uh, looking ahead to the future? Well, I think what, it, what it's telling us is that climate change is here. Um, for whatever reason, whatever's causing it, there is climate change and we're experiencing it here in Hawaii. And uh, the golf course, uh, if it's going to play the way it was designed and the way Corey Crenshaw really want it, is I believe gonna have to be prepared even differently than, than we did this past uh, couple of months. Um, the water's gotta get turned off as early as possible in the fall. Uh, and the approaches to the greens, particularly the greens that are open in the front, the downhill kind of shots where uh, the green complexes were designed to bounce the ball up, uh, you, you've got to still um, play, play the shots that way. Um, you know, this past week, players are able to fly the ball pretty much all the way to the hole. The 18th hole is a perfect example. When we designed the course, we wanted a finishing par five, a big sweeping hole down the mountain, and, and it turned out great. But we have pushed that tee back over the 30 years. We lengthened that hole, I think, five different times. It went from 550 all the way to 670. Uh, and now in the last few years, we've had to build a forward tee. Again, because of this climate change and because of the fact that so much of the time now the wind is actually coming off the water into you and you can't, can't reach it uh, in two shots. And it's supposed to be a two-shot hole. I wonder if there's any course on tour that has been affected more than that course in that exact sense, in the climate change sense. Can you imagine like any other mainstay tour stop that kind of has to get a, an annual checkup like that? No, I can't. I'll tell you, it has the PGA Tour agronomy staff scratching their heads. Uh, you know, they were out here a couple of times in the fall and 
you know, they're looking at it just seeing, uh, you know, the kind of flexibility that they have to have. The setup, uh, you know, is really difficult, particularly in the mornings when you're placing the tee markers, because obviously after a group tees off on a hole, you can't change where the tees are. But you're going to have to, if it's calm in the morning and the field staff is putting the tee markers, let's say, on the seventh hole, which is a 520-yard par four, uh, if they're putting them on the back tee, the back of the back tee, and all of a sudden the southwest wind comes up, the hole becomes just an absolute beast, uh, you know, where you might have 230, 240 for a second shot into the green, into the wind. Um, so they have to be very careful the way they set it up. Consequently, the setups are usually pretty conservative, uh, and that's the reason, main reason, I think, why you've been seeing low scoring the last few years. Mark, big picture when you are thinking about the season to come, are there any players that you are particularly excited to, to see how they do? Does anyone grab your attention? Uh, you know, if you see them pop up on the TV screen, you kind of stop what you're doing, stand at attention. Yeah, they do. It's it's interesting. Um, when, when players come here, you know, uh, with a small field, there's a lot of guys you think have a chance to win. Uh, you know, I really felt at the beginning of the week, like all 37 of the players could could win the tournament. But in the end, um, it seems like there's always a few players that do extremely well in Hawaii. And that's why uh, it kind of taints my perspective on things. Like, for, for example, you can't ever go against Justin Thomas and Xander Shoffley on the plantation course. The record is just so unbelievable uh, up there that you can't go against them. And they come out here and they play great. And then, you know. I, I leave saying, well, Shopley, this is Shopley's year. You know, this is going to be it. Uh, and I'm in that same boat again. I just I look at that guy and I say to myself, how can he not break out? How can he not win one of those majors? You know, wh wh where does Shopley really fit well? Brookline to me, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there are so many great young players. I will tell you guys this. I, I think the days of having a dominant player are over. I don't think you're ever going to see these runs of, of world number ones like we used to see with Greg Norman uh, or Tiger. And, um, I, you know, it's it's going to be it's going to change. You'll never see a big three even again. You won't see a dominant three kind of player. Um, it's, it's such a fine line between the elite elite players and the really good players. And we're starting to see that with guys like, you know, Jason Kokrak all of a sudden and Sam Burns and. Um, you know, Victor Hovland, and uh, I don't know. I, I've got my eye on a lot of players, but um, I don't know. Somehow I gravitate back to Shoffley. <laughs> well, we're big fans of Xander here. Uh, so this is the Hawaii golf swing, right? It's the Hawaii golf season. Uh, even the senior players will make it to Hawaii after this. What happens when the pros leave? What happens to your life in Hawaii when all the pro golfers and pro golf tournaments are over? Well, I guess seniority has a little bit of its privilege. So, um, you know, my schedule is kind of set now. So I get to spend a lot of time out here in the islands in the winter, which is what I like. I have not worked since the Ryder Cup. So I had the last couple of wow. months off. You uh, and then Patrick I do three weeks. Yeah. And then I don't start again until uh, Florida. So, so that is, that is really nice. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little concerned about this Hawaii swing in general, uh, particularly the Sony open. It was pretty disappointing to me how few players um, 
came from Kapalua over to Oahu for Sony Open. It's an inordinately small number this year. And, you know, I I think the PGA Tour really has to look at that. Um, You know, they've done a good job, I think, with the whole Saudi Arabia situation where they protected Pebble Beach and they gave releases to players. I think there's 29 of them, maybe, that got releases and that that, – mandates that they play pebble beach you know once in the next couple of years or something like that but that doesn't help the events the week before and if you look at the sony open uh which is you know starting with the wine open been a fixture on the pga tour for over 50 years you can't play in hawaii in the middle of the pacific ocean and then play in abu dhabi the next week so it's not just the same exact week the conflicting week it's, it's an event like the sony open and you know, to lose a player like Justin Thomas, who shot 59 at Wiley and, and won the Sony Open, you know, who's going to play Abu Dhabi, for him to go over there uh, from Hawaii, it's just not feasible uh, the preceding week. So, I don't know, something's going to happen. You know, I constantly am venting about the fact that I don't think these uh, international events should be able to give both appearance money and world golf ranking points. One, one of those has to change. Either get one or the other. But you can't have them both because if you do, uh, it's going to continue to um, drain the PGA Tour events, the West Coast swing. Mark, what's something that casual golf fans that that haven't been to Hawaii might not know about Hawaii golf in general? Not just the professional game, but playing golf there, maybe how the locals experience golf. Well, a few things about Hawaii. Uh, First is you're going to hit the longest drives of your life. You, You probably will play your best golf when you come to Hawaii. And that's one of the reasons why it's so popular here. Um, you know, the ground is very, very hard. You know, m- most of the, you know, the bases for these courses are, are the side of a volcano. Uh, and so you can drive the ball a mile. Uh, the, the fairways are extremely lush. The grass is phenomenal out here. So you're always, you always got good lives. So you're actually going to play really good golf. But the thing about Hawaii that's interesting is that there's so much different uh, there's so much diversity amongst the courses, even on this island. You know, when you take any one of the seven major Hawaiian islands, there is a dry end, which is typically a flatter end. Uh, and that's the west part of most of these islands. Uh, and you're going to have a certain style course there, typically a flatter course like Wailai uh, on Oahu. Um, the courses are typically smaller because you don't need as big a space. Uh, and then you get up to where the ground is higher and more on the east side, you have a tropical uh, climate and, and it's wetter and, and windier typically. So when you go to the desert, when you go to Arizona or Palm Springs, there's a lot of phenomenal golf courses there, um, but they all have the same sort of desert feel to them. Whereas in Hawaii, you can come to Maui for a week, play seven different times and think you're in seven different parts of the world because the climates are different topography is different and the courses play way different so a lot of diversity dylan i think we need to go to hawaii <laughs> i know yeah, yeah sold um all right we've already taken more time than we said we would mark but just a couple last questions one i'm wondering if you've ever talked to patrick cantley about his hot mic moment where he was doing some impression on the 18th hole and it went viral but nobody really knew what he was talking about have you guys ever covered that subject I haven't actually covered it with him, but a few people, you know, apparently, uh, you know, he was saying something to the effect that, you know, Mark's probably up there laughing at us and 
happy that you know this is this is happening down here. Uh, I I don't think there was any ill intent there, so I haven't really taken it up with him. Um, usually when I'm watching him play golf, he's pretty fixed on what he's doing, and I'm pretty fixed on what I'm doing. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. It was definitely just felt like a pretty fun moment, but I was I figured that that had gotten sent your way at some point. Oh yeah. Um, and then the last thing I'm wondering is just what your favorite part of your job is. You know, it's the people I meet, I think. Uh, and, and to me, that is the greatest part of golf. Um, you know, it's the greatest game in the world, as you well know, both guys. Uh, but just the people that are involved are the highest quality people. In, and I love the folks. And uh, I just I get to meet new people all the time. And every every day for me is kind of an adventure. And uh, especially kind of now late in my career, as, as I get toward the end of my career, I, I think it's, um, I don't know, I, I look at Tiger Woods, for example, and I see now how much more he appreciates what he meant to the fans and, and what his contribution to the game was. I'm not sure he appreciated it as much personally 20 years ago, let's say. And, and I don't know that I did 20 years ago that I really appreciated what I was doing uh, as much as I do now. and. Um, you know, every day that I get to go to work, uh, it, it's amazing to me that I have this job. And uh, I think, yeah, I go to great places and see the best courses and get to play them and all that. But to me, it always comes back to the people. I just love the people that are involved in the game. You mentioned Tiger. My last question for you uh, is the the natural connection between you and Tiger, uh, for my purposes, is Jackson Park. Do we have an update on Jackson Park coming? Do we do we have any optimism about that moving forward? I do. Um, you know, the Obama Presidential Center is under construction, um, and that is good. You know, there were a lot of uh, a lot of issues surrounding that, a lot of challenging issues, and and somehow they got through it. Uh, we just simply weren't able to move on the golf course until the Presidential Center issues got solved, and and they have. Uh, the fact is now, you know, the presidential center is going to be on a 20 acre parcel and the front yard is Jackson Park Golf Course, you know, 120 acres um, that has to be, you know, be fitting to, you know, a one billion dollar project that's sitting right next to it. And it's a hundred year old course uh, that needs definite work, whether or not it's Tiger Woods or Mark Rolfing or Barack Obama. Um, you know, the irrigation system needs to get replaced. The bunkers need to get redone. You know, they puddle up and it, and it won't have rained for a month and you see water in the bunkers there at Jackson. So uh, it, it's got to be done. I think it will. I will tell you that Tiger has been uh, incredible. I, I thought there was three or four times in the last five years that he would walk away just frustrated because of some of the you know, obstacles we ran into, but he is not. He is fully committed. Um, and I think what, what I'm seeing with it, first of all, he loves Chicago. He loves the concept of public golf and kids and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm also starting to feel like, you know, Tiger's legacy is written on the course, no, no matter what he does uh, in the rest of his playing career. His, his legacy on the course is written. His legacy off the course is yet to be written. I really believe that. And his dad told us, you know, many years ago that he could have a greater impact, you know, on this planet than any other human ever. I, I think that was a pretty 
pretty big statement to make, but the fact is Tiger can have a huge impact. And none of it, I think, will be on the course uh, much longer. And Jackson Park is a perfect example. He can, he can really change an entire community, an entire place, an entire culture. Tiger Woods can do it. And um, I think he knows that. And, and it's not just in golf course design, other things, messaging that Tiger could do for young people and, and things like that down the line. You know, he's, he's yet to write that legacy. Um, and I think he will, but I think he's now realizing, you know, the second half of his life really is going to be dedicated to writing that legacy and making it a good one. I love that. I love Jackson Park too, but I, I know, like you said, there's plenty of work that can be done there. So looking forward to when it comes to fruition. That's a pretty powerful trio though there, Mark. There's, uh, you know, Barack Obama, Tiger Woods, and Mark Rolfing. You figure one of them is going to get this thing across the finish line. I, I think you're right. I, I'm with you on that. We will. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Have a terrific start to the season. Enjoy Hawaii and and uh, keep spreading the good messages about uh, about the trade wins from where you are. Yes, Kona. <laughs> All right, take care, guys. More Kona. Thanks for having me on. Okay, Sean, that was us with Mark Rolfing. I just listened back to it, and I actually I do feel even better. Um, any big updates for our stock game this week? Do you have <laughs> anyone in the field? Uh, oh yeah, I mean I had Patrick Reed, had Brooks Kepka, both guys really kind of. <laughs> didn't do a whole lot for me um no one had cam smith no. my big update is i was just kind of thrilled with the response online a lot of people who either listen to the podcast or follow us on twitter dove in to one say that this game is brilliant and then secondarily to that give us some uh give us some stock choices of their own we have i think i've made out now at least three people wanted their stocks to be included alongside ours in the year long game. So like they're going to basically be podcast hosts with us in this uh, chase to make the most money, I guess. Um, we will make this interactive next year, maybe <laughs> even in Q2 or Q3, Sean. I cannot wait for you to figure out the Google form to do that, <laughs> Dylan. Um, but yeah, I was just thrilled to see people really like the idea because you and I talked about it for a long time. It seemed extremely fun, and it, it, I think it's going to prove to be just as fun as we thought it would be. Absolutely. All right, I think that's good enough for this week. Uh, have a great week, Sean. Have a great week to all of you Drop Zone listeners out there. Uh, we'll see you next week. Ooh.